Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights law. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm joined by David Allen Green, um, who's here to discuss the constitutional explosion as the government stood up in Parliament and said they were going to enact legislation which would breach international law. Why does it matter? What is the rule of law and why should we care? What impact does it have for all of us? The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You will acquire the academic knowledge and professional skills to start a dynamic legal career. To learn more, visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. If you want to support this podcast and help me make it sustainable, then please consider chipping in a few pounds a month, www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thanks very much for coming along, David. Um, We're going to talk about one particular thing, which is the, the government's admission yesterday through Brandon Lewis that a particular step that they're planning to take, and I'm going to quote does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We're taking the powers of this to apply the EU law concept of direct effect in a certain very tightly defined circumstance. Now, now the first thing to ask is, can you untangle what that means, what the government think it means, and what it relates to? Hi, Adam. Yes, it's a fascinating development. We thought last year constitutional law was as exciting as it could ever be. Little did we realise that uh, was going to happen this year with, on the face of it, a minister in the House of Commons at the dispatch box expressly saying that the government is deliberately going to be in breach of law. So it, it doesn't become more fascinating uh, from a constitutional law point of view, than than this. That said, we must be careful about what we are discussing at this point. We're not discussing any proposed legal instrument itself. We've not seen what the government is intending to put in place. As far as I know, I don't think the bill has been published yet, or if it has been published, I haven't seen it. So we're, we're, we are examining, with anxious scrutiny, a statement in the House of Commons rather than any proposed legal instrument which will put the government in breach of the law. But even on this level of principle, it is it is astonishing. Yes, the bits which come after the admission about what law they are breaking and why they are doing it is is, is, is interesting. It's how they're trying to rationalise it. But taking one step away from this particular instance, as a matter of basic principle, it wouldn't matter if this was social security law or the law relating to the torture of detainees or whatever. It's just an extraordinary place for the government to be in. But what, what's it about? I mean, what is this policy which the government is pursuing and this potential bill that's going to be um, offered to Parliament? What, what, what does it relate to? As far as I know, this comes down to the withdrawal agreement. The withdrawal agreement is uh, an agreement within between the UK and the European Union. It is an agreement which has existence as a matter of public international law, the law relating to what governments of countries and international organisations can do and cannot do. That 
agreement, however, in turn, was put into effect into do- domestic law by uh, an Act of Parliament for European Union Withdrawal Agreement Act 2020, which was passed in January by this current Parliament. So we have already some fairly extraordinary points here. This is not some sort of unwanted international law because it's tagged onto some sort of international convention which the government uh, is obliged to comply with. No, this is actually an obligation which the government, this government freely entered into. It was a provision for which they got a mandate at the December general election. And it is a provision which this government not only entered into, but implemented into law with an emphatic commons majority. And so this isn't some sort of unforeseen provision which has, has, has come to the government's sudden attention. This is something which they have known about ever since Johnson made his compromise to get a withdrawal agreement. It's a provision relating to uh, the status of European Union law in in Northern Ireland. And so it is as fundamental an issue as as you can imagine, given how important the Good Friday Agreement is, the importance of the Irish border and so on. So it is a significant provision and it is actually something which is part of domestic law to the extent that the Withdrawal Agreement has been implemented into domestic law through the Withdrawal Agreement Act. Can I can I just ask for somebody listening who doesn't know the difference between domestic law, so our local UK law and international law, what what, what is the difference and, and how does it work? I mean, this is a bit of a sort of you're getting into the weeds of our unwritten constitution. How does it work in practice, this difference in our system, in the UK system between international and domestic law? Starting point is law is law. Uh, there are different types of law. There's contract law, commercial law, criminal law. The feature of law is that it can be identified and recognised by a court and enforced when applicable. And so in that way, there is no difference between national law and international law. There's just law. And the question is, is whether it is something which would be recognised and enforced by a court or that it isn't. And so when you say something is international law and it isn't really enforceable, Yes, uh, it is still law because a court would still recognise it as law in a certain situation. The real difference comes from the UK's approach to international law, which is that it only has effect in the courts if it is actually also effectively ratified by Parliament. So we have what's called a dual system of domestic law, which Parliament passes or the courts develop and so on. And you have international law which doesn't have direct effect in the courts straight away unless it's been ratified by Parliament. This withdrawal agreement provision is a little bit of both. It's something which was agreed between the UK and the EU, so it's international law or what we call public international law. But it also uh, has been given effect in the Withdrawal Agreement Act, so it's both. And I guess the next question is, well, we have our own Parliament, and Parliament sets the law of the land, um, and it's up to the state, which I guess is the the government um, government plus. So I guess it, it sort of formally includes the Queen um, to sign up to treaties. Does it really matter? And if so, why? If Parliament decides to renege 
on a on an on a treaty which has been agreed between our state, the UK, and the European Union? Well, if a government reneges, there are two issues here. There's firstly there's the normative moral issue that it's not sensible for any government to be known for not taking international obligations seriously, especially when those international obligations have been freely entered into. It creates a moral hazard. It just makes it far more difficult for any UK government in the future to negotiate if the other side don't actually believe we're going to comply with what we've freely entered into. So that's one thing. It creates a moral hazard. But in a more substantive legal sense, yes, there may be enforcement mechanisms under the withdrawal agreement or under some sort of or some some or in some other forum depending on the nature of how the government is setting about breaching this and those can have uh consequences because the government has not only entered into obligations under the withdrawal agreement it has actually entered into certain mechanisms for dealing with disputes at this stage we don't know exactly how the eu would go about trying to enforce this obligation or even if they would do so but it would a breach would have both these normative and and practical consequences. But it would be really down to the European Union to decide how it would go about enforcing this provision, and there it probably would take the lead from the Irish government. And, and isn't there an argument also that what's going on here, really, if you look back at this um, at the Johnson approach to international affairs, it's a bit of a Trump Trump style gambit of threatening to do something which breaches norms and in fact and indeed just goes back on everything that's been said before making yourself seem to be you know a high wire um risky actor or risk-taking actor and then um getting your way in negotiations as a result or that at least is the it may be the intention i don't think that's entirely the case here i don't think this is just posturing i don't think this is just blustering if it was just posture and bluff and bluster, then the head of the government legal service, Jonathan Jones, would not have resigned on this issue. I think that is the test here. Is this something more than Trump uh, boastfulness and and aggression? Well, it looks as if it's gone one stage further and the government at a ministerial level was actually put, going to take decisions which it knew to be unlawful. I'm just going to read from the Guardian article from yesterday um, about what happened with Sir Jonathan Jones. Um, it says, Jonathan Jones is understood to have become exasperated that ministers intended to ignore his advice that any changes in the new internal market bill would likely be illegal. The Guardian understands that the government saw independent legal advice from a leading barrister whose advice chimed with that of Jones, but their opinions were overridden by ministers. Um, so this is that, that's pretty serious stuff. And, and we've both um, been involved in acting for the government. You work for the Treasury Sister, I think, and I, I was on the government panel for five years. Um, these are not uh, performative um sort of uh, throw their toys out of the pram kind of lawyers in my experience these are very they put up with a lot a lot of stuff over the years um so this is it's, it's a big deal there's two things we can work out from uh from those reported facts one uh the government has its own public international law specialists within the government legal service so if they have gone to outside counsel on this issue 
when there isn't any litigation pending, as far as I know. That has been a deliberate decision of somebody very senior. And what it appears to me to have happened from those facts is the Government Legal Service has provided advice. And either they were challenged on that or as a preemptive step, they decided to go to outside counsel to basically supercharge their position. It sounds to me as if outside counsel has essentially substantiated what the uh, Government Legal Service has, has said. You do not get outside advice from senior counsel on an issue unless there's litigation without somebody senior making that decision. And so it's fascinating to try and work out what must have happened for this to have been the outcome. The second thing we can work out from this is this is a difference of view on legality. Government lawyers, as you say, have put up with a lot. And as a government lawyer, you often have to find a sound legal basis for all sorts of things which you personally find distasteful. That is what you do as a government lawyer. I, when I was with the Treasury Solicitor 15 years ago, I personally had to advise the government to do things which I personally and politically were opposed to. That is what you do. But there is one thing, which is a range of views of interpreting the law, and we may differ. And then there is a view that what is going to be proposed is actually outside the range of what is lawful. So it isn't just a matter of, of opinion about interpretation or construction. It is outside the scope of what can be legal in the first place. And that means that the government lawyers are in an impossible position because they can't find a sound legal basis for something which the government is deliberately doing, which is unlawful. And 17 years ago, uh, in 2003, a, another government lawyer, another senior government lawyer called Elizabeth Wilmshurst, was also placed in a very similar position where she believed that what the government was proposing to do vis-a-vis -vis the invasion of Iraq was outside the scope of what was permissible in international law. Not that the government had a different view and had ignored and disagreed with her on the interpretation, but that the government was actually going to do something which was unlawful. And so she resigned. And although it had little practical consequence, nothing really changed because a government lawyer resigned, it was a hugely significant uh, incident uh, from, a, from, from a legal and constitutional point of view. And a great deal of what happened after the botched Iraq invasion flows from the sort of bad decisions which were made at the time when the government knew that it was actually acting unlawfully or probably was acting unlawfully. And you look back to the Wilmshurst resignation as, as, as a comparison to the Jones resignation, and both are hugely significant. It's interesting that Jonathan Jones was the, the head of the government legal service during the, prorog the prorogation issue when the government decided to shut down Parliament for six weeks or so and was eventually overruled by the Supreme Court. But presumably there was a sufficient legal argument to justify um, prorogation, even if it wasn't a very strong one. Um, to because there's obviously a different unless this is the sort of the straw that broke the donkey's back and this is a series of incidents where the government have acted in ways which the, the government legal department have advised strongly against leading to this resignation uh, the prorogation case is telling in this context on a detail which i mentioned in the ft yesterday about the litigation if you remember the, the, the argument was that the government uh, had the power to prorogue Parliament. And the argument was, well, the government may have the power, but not on this occasion. 
So it would have come down to the reasoning of the government. Why was the government exercising this power at this time in this way, a five-week shutdown? And that went to the Supreme Court. And there was something missing, something conspicuous by its absence in that case. It was a written statement, a statement by an official or a minister explaining the basis of the decision. There was no witness statement. Nobody would put their name to a witness statement under peril of perjury. And in the absence of there being reasoning, the Supreme Court held that the decision was unlawful because it had no rational basis. And it literally was unreasonable because no reasons had been given to the court for doing so. But I have often pondered that missing witness statement because it was glaring in its absence. Had the statement gone in explaining the reasons for the decision to close down Parliament, the government's case would have been far, far stronger. So why was there not a witness statement? And the only reason there, should not, there would not be a witness statement, the only reason why nobody under peril of perjury would sign such a witness statement was that the true reasons for that shutdown were not good reasons. And nobody would put their name to a statement which actually set out pretend hindsight reasons to try and justify something made for another basis. And I often think there must have been huge rows in government. The government legal service would have told the government, you are going to lose this case at the Supreme Court unless you provide reasons. But the only reasons which accord with the contemporaneous evidence are bad ones. So you've either got to admit in the witness statement that there were bad reasons, or you've got to put you got to put a statement in putting better reasons, but those won't be true. And if you put a statement before the court which isn't true, that's perjury, and that's a criminal offence. And so there must have been an almighty well. You are right. I think it was arguable that the government had the power in a certain circumstance to prorogue Parliament. Uh, it's probably at the limit of what was lawfully open to it, but it would have always come down to the reasons. And the fact that the government legal service did not put a, a, a witness statement in that case is probably a forerunner of what's happened now. The government legal service said, no, you can't do that. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. I think that moves us on to another interesting question, which is when can ministers do something which they know is likely to break the law? Um, and Tom Hickman, who's a barrister and an academic, um, posted a very interesting excerpt from a policy which had been released um, under Freedom of Information Act request in 2018, yesterday. He posted it on Twitter. And it's a policy about when ministers can act on advice that what they're doing is likely to be unlawful. And what it says is that ministers may legitimately decide to proceed with a proposal, even if it carries a high risk defined as 70% plus 
of a legal challenge being brought um, and 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 an illegal challenge being even a seventy percent plus of a legal challenge being successful, and just to, as a uh, square brackets point, when at least at the bar when you advise seventy percent plus, you meet really mean a hundred percent. You know, well you're close enough. It's 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 almost I, I can think of three occasions when I've advised that highly um, in a case because usually there's arguments one way or the other. So it's pretty it's pretty barn door. Um, but what the policy also says is that you cannot act if there is no respectable legal argument that you could put to the courts that you will need to advise the proposed action is unlawful. Um, that is likely to be highly exceptional. And if you're in this territory, you should refer this matter to your line manager and legal director before you advise. And well, I think sorry that I think that's the that's the what that's what's said to the lawyers. But the point is that you that the minister I, I think the minister cannot act if there's no respectable legal argument. But even if there is a high likelihood of losing, but there is still a credible argument, you can act. Um, and that I found just really interesting from a democratic perspective, from a moral perspective, from a rule of law perspective. Yes. Uh- but this goes beyond that policy. Hick- the policy which uh, Tom Hickman very uh, wonderfully has put on his, on his Twitter feed goes to things where there is perhaps an open question as to whether something is unlawful or not. And to use the phrase lawyers like using, you take a view. You, you, yes, these are the risks, and you try and forecast what the court will do. And so if it is an area where you can't find a legal basis and you can't find a legal principle which is engaged and you're going from 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 your own first principles to try and work out whether something would be lawful or not, you take a view. And if you think it's very unlikely I'm going to find a lawful basis for this, then you come within the policy uh, which Tom Hickman has published. But this is a different type to that. This is beyond the boundary. This is when the government isn't just unaware of a legal basis or doesn't think there might be a legal basis or think there might be only a 5% chance of it being found to be lawful. This is the government deliberately saying it will do something which it knows to be unlawful. That is beyond the the boundaries of this policy. We assume, because we, we, we haven't seen the advice, so the advice might have said 80% unlawful, likely to be unlawful. There's some, you know, we've got uh, there's oh, some clever argument. that advice. I agree with you on the advice, but if we come to what the minister explicitly said in the House of Commons, he wasn't saying it would only be 5% lawful or it's risky or we've got to take a view on the liability. He actually explicitly said we are going to do something we know to be unlawful. Yeah, so which which must mean that they had advice saying it's going to be unlawful 100%. Because they're, otherwise, they would have said, "No, we we think there's a credible argument that you know that it's lawful for this reason," and they would have used it. Whereas yes. the, the, it, for them to admit, um, you know, uh, f- for them to admit, as the minister does um, in in Parliament, that yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. You know, the mealy mouth words there, um, but it does break international law. So they must know they're doing it. Just on that one point, we must say well done to Sir Bob Neil for uh, asking that straight, difficult question to the minister at the dispatch box, which forced the minister to actually explicitly say this. But I don't think it was a slip of the tongue. I think this was something he was prepared to have to say. He was prepared to say, if challenged on on this, 
we're, we're speaking before Prime Minister's question time. It may well be that there's a, a U-turn on this and that another way forward. There are ways around the legal issue, I understand, and ways in within the withdrawal agreement, uh, for example, to say, if you believe the European Union are acting unreasonably, then you can actually have certain parts of the of withdrawal agreement disapplied. There may be other ways around this other than the proposed unlawful action. So they may find a way out in, in the end. Um, but, but but just assuming they don't, assuming that this all goes ahead as planned and this bill is put, put before Parliament, which the government accepts would break international law, that raises a question about that, that a number of lawyers were um, putting yesterday um, on, on, on various media. Um, and I think for, from a lawyer's perspective, where if you're a lawyer in, in, and you become a uh, parliamentarian, um, mm-hmm. then you still retain certain responsibilities towards the rule of law. And some ministers um, actually act in a way as lawyers um, in parliament. I mean, Keir Starmer is, is, is a former lawyer who is now a politician. He doesn't have a legal role. Whereas Suella Braverman um, and Robert Buckland, the um, Attorney General and the Lord Chancellor, they have sort of semi-legal roles, don't they? And you get into this murky territory of what is the right thing for them to do in this circumstance. Well, for the Lord Chancellor, there are express uh, duties on him to uphold the rule of law. That is within his. That is within the oath of the Lord Chancellor, and it's a a duty which is recognised in Section 1 of the Constitutional Reform Act 2005. Uh, He has to act in accordance with the rule of law. And so when the government were playing uh, games this time last year in trying to make out that they would act unlawfully to force through the uh, no-deal Brexit, and they were prevented from doing so by the Ben Act, if you recall, the Lord Chancellor intervened, uh, according to reports, to make sure that the government did not seriously suggest that it was going to break the law. Uh, One wonders what uh, Robert Buckland is doing behind the scenes. I I know that he does take this seriously and uh, that he must be in an incredibly conflicted position. Uh, As regards Braverman, I have no idea how she takes the views she does. And the Attorney General, nominally, is the head of the bar. Uh, it, historically, it was always seen as the most prestigious job for a practising barrister. Uh, now, because there's so few lawyers in Parliament, the Attorney General's role is now given to people who have very have no real experience and often no respect for the law in this case. And I think she, her position... Is, is 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 very unfortunate and perhaps in the medium to longer term adam we've got to think through the roles of lord chancellor stroke secretary of state for justice and and attorney general what do you do when there aren't either mps of sufficient legal experience to take the roles or if there are in the case of buckland who is a i think a silk in his own right uh there's very little support for the moving government in trying to protect the rule of law these sort of quasi-legal, quasi-political positions are very difficult to maintain in the current situation. I mean, I, I think maybe the issue is not nece- not that there aren't lawyers with experience. It isn't the issue that the that, that Johnson was looking for someone who was ideologically going to follow through 
with whatever he wanted to do, and particularly thinking about the Judicial Review and the Human Rights Act changes, which were promised in the in the manifesto, that he, Johnson, will look at what happened with Dominic Grieve, who was a who was a really top attorney general from a rule of law perspective. He also resigned um, yes. for for principal reasons over reforms of the to the Human Rights Act. And Johnson will look at that and think, well, I don't want somebody who's going to speak truth to power and is going to object to my, um, is going to rally <laughs> objections to my policies. I just want someone who's going to toe the line. And yes. and, and I don't know Suella Braverman, so I can't, I, I'm not commenting on her personal values or morals. Or we'll, we'll see, you know, the proof will be in the pudding as it was with Grieve. But really what happened in my, my analysis, what happened there is you, that you got rid of Jeffrey Cox, who you know, wasn't always that popular with the legal community, but he seemed to be an independent mind um, and somebody who would, at who did st and would stand up for the rule of law at certain points, at crunch points. But it, he's been replaced by someone far more junior and far less likely, it would seem, to, to do that and stand up in that same way. My comments are not about her personal qualities as such either. It's about her performance of her role. And my concern about her performance of the role came when she in a very unfortunate way, treated in support of Dominic Cummings when there was still a live police investigation, when the Attorney General is the superintendent of the Crown Prosecution Service. For an Attorney General in those circumstances to comment on a case which is still under police investigation was, was to use a word which I'm often using now, extraordinary. And that was the moment I thought she was unfitted for the role because she didn't realise at the moment she treated or allowed that tweet to be sent on her behalf, the issues it would raise. And to, and, and to not have that awareness of what your role is, to not realise as Attorney General what your role is in respect of the Crown Prosecution Service and live investigations, meant that she didn't understand the position she had been given. I just want to finish off with this idea of the rule of law, because we, we bandy it about um, as lawyers a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it seems to me to be a kind of, it's a rallying cry which works across the political spectrum. You don't need to be when you say we've got to stand up for human rights, I, I, I unfortunately, I think that has a that's become politically divisive. Uh, it shouldn't be, but it has. Um, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you find that it's far more popular on the left than on the right. And the rule of law, um, I, I think, is sometimes used as a kind of cipher for things like human rights, principles like human rights, like internationally recognised values, which go outside of and uh, are separate from national national and populist political currents so i think the rule of law itself is not actually that liberal a concept or if it's taken to mean that everything should have a lawful basis which is one way of understanding the rule of law a tyranny can have the rule of law and indeed some of the uh, greatest tyrannies some of the most illiberal states have done so through its use of law the national socialists in germany being the most obvious example but not the only example the rule of law meaning that things should be done on a lawful basis rather than on an arbitrary or, or, or other basis is not in actually inherently liberal. It's only liberal when you start articulating it as everybody is subject to the law. But saying that something should have a lawful basis before the government should do it is, is, is something which uh, is so ingrained in our culture, as you say, it's something which both the left and the right should respect. And for the government to say that they are deliberately going to do things for which they know they haven't got a lawful basis and in breach of what they understand the law to be. Well, the problem with that, as 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 
so many people have pointed out is once you start making an exception for yourself, you are, by implication, making an exception for everybody. I just want to finish off with um, with a quote from Lord Bingham, um, Tom Bingham, who who wrote the the current sort of you know go to text on the rule of law. It's called the rule of law, and in fact, the copy I've got has a very interesting uh, picture on the front the um, of Lady Liberty, um, a statue of Lady Liberty, Lady Liberty with a crown drawn on her head. And I'm not I'm not sure whether, you know, I, that does make me think what you've said about is this really a liberal concept? Do we want law to wear the crown? I don't know. I, 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 I'm more of a separation of the powers kind of person. But his eighth principle of the rule of law was that the rule of law requires compliance by the state with its obligations in international law as in national law. And the chapter that he wrote is actually, you know, it, it really grapples with this question of whether international law is truly law in the same way that domestic law is. And, and I'm just going to read one paragraph. He says, the, the analogy, um, even, if in, even if inexact, with the domestic situation makes plain, I suggest why we should favour strict compliance with the law. However much any of us as individuals might relish the opportunity to live our lives free from all legal constraints, whether to pay taxes, observe the highway code, obtain planning permission, discharge our debts or refrain from assaulting our next door neighbour. We know quite well that acceptance of these constraints is the necessary price to be paid for their observance by others and that a society in which no one will be subject to such constraints would not be a very congenial one then there might indeed be no such thing as society the same is true as the in, in sorry the same is true in the international sphere, sphere i'm going to say that again the same is true in the in, in international sphere however attractive it might be for a single state to be free from the legal constraints that bind all other states those states are unlikely to tolerate such a situation for very long and in the meantime the solo state would lose the benefits and protections that international agreements can confer the rule of the jungle is no more tolerable in a big jungle. The two things to say to that is, first of all, the advisors to the current government say that they're interested in game theory and behavioural psychology. But as, as Bingham quite rightly articulates there, it's, it's once you start being known as a rule breaker, that disadvantages you straight away. And how are other states going to ever take us seriously if if we say we are not going to accept agreements freely entered into? And second of all, I really hope Penguin in the next edition of the Rule of Law put Castle Barnard on the front of it. <laughs> because the trip, the trip to Bernard Barnard Castle was a perfect example of this idea that there are laws are for other people. And the Rule of Law even in its neutral articulation as just saying everything should have a lawful basis, means that the laws are there for everybody rather than just for other people. And in an ongoing pandemic where we need people to follow rules um, and not rely on the police to enforce the unenforceable, that couldn't be more important. Yes, yes. And with... With the coronavirus uh, situation ongoing and with uh, Brexit taking full effect at the end of this year, for the government to say that it was, itself has no respect for, for, for the law as a matter of principle, when it is going to have to carry on 
making sure that people and businesses and so on comply with the law because otherwise a, a dreadful situation will become even more dreadful places the government in in the worst possible position and it's extraordinary to use that word again that we are seriously discussing uh, a minister telling the house of commons explicitly that the government is proposing to break the law. That would have been extraordinary at any point, but it's particularly extraordinary at a time where the government really needs people to respect the law, both in respect to coronavirus and and the upcoming uh, full exit from the European Union. David, thanks very much for coming on the podcast again. Uh, it was really interesting to talk about this important issue. Yes, and uh, as I said at the beginning, this was done without sight of the bill of the Internal Services uh proposed legislation and also before Prime Minister's question time. So hopefully something of what we've said will uh, survive the next few political events of, of, of the next day or two. Thank you for inviting me on, Adam. Thanks very much, David. So thanks very much to David Allen Green for coming again on the podcast and talking about this important issue. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. To learn more, please visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. If you want to support this podcast, please go and leave a review on your favourite podcast service, which makes a huge difference um, if it's positive to getting it in front of other people and getting it up in the algorithm. Please also consider chipping in a few pounds a month at www.betterhumanpodcast.com. And um, just to, if a few more tens of people do that, that will make this podcast sustainable. Thank you very much to my research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Eames, and the podcast editor, Sammy Bruff. See you next time. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast.